today I have a very special guest, Adi Saigal, as he is, uh, you know, very fondly called in the circle that Reket Bankies are now Reket. China at that point in time is a 4.5 trillion dollar economy. Today, China is 17 and a half, 18 trillion. Think about what's going to happen to India. 3.5 trillion, if it underperforms China at a similar level, will still become 14 trillion. So in the next 15 years, India is going to grow 5x. When you work in China, it's not like it's portrayed at all in the news. In every culture that you go to, including China and India, we are the good people, principled people, and all these foreigners are the people who are into all this kinky stuff. Um, we created an app which became one of the top five apps on the Chinese app store for a while. It was called the Durex Baby. You download the app on two phones and you basically rub the phones together. About one in three times a baby is born. Welcome to the barbershop. Uh, today I have a very, very, very special uh, guest, uh, Adi Seigel, as he is, uh, you know, very fondly called in the circle that Reket Benkiza are now Reket. Uh, Aditya Seigel, for those of you who might want to go on to Arjun's episode and see who we were talking about, but is a new entrepreneur, has been working on an idea for the last year called Asgard.world, which is a mind-blowing, quite literally a mind-blowing metaverse idea. Um, but before that, spent uh, almost three decades at, at Reckitt in multiple countries across multiple roles and was a global chief operating officer for their entire business. So someone who's really, really built out, uh, you know, brands, businesses, and is now an entrepreneur. Uh, so I'm always very excited to talk to him and Addy, welcome to the barbershop. Thank you, Shantanu. <laughs> Great to be here. Amazing. So when we did uh, the Arjun episode, I think we both referred to you a lot, him especially because a lot of his stories obviously had you as a I, protagonist. I heard that episode and I was cringing and I was like, <laughs> why are these people doing this? <laughs> right, he was very complimentary. You're cringing because of the of the good stuff coming I'm out. I'm cringing because of the, <laughs> yeah, of the complimentariness <laughs> of what was happening. But uh, a lot of people said, hey, who is Addy? Who is he talking about? Because I think a lot of people would have tried to search you on LinkedIn and maybe many would have found you and so on. But uh, they said, get him on the on the podcast. So here we are. 10,010 days at Reckitt. Uh, that's an incredible career. Talk about how how do you stay at an organization that long and become so central to everything that the organization does as you grow senior? So, listen, I, I was blessed in my career. So I've... I was one of those rare people who had this extremely boring career, not really, <laughs> uh, of 27 years with one company. And uh, there are very few people who can say they spent 27 years with one company. Uh, it's a testament, first of all, to the company and the people in the company, right? So this is a company where you could, I joined it as a management trainee out of IM Cal in India in 1994. And uh, it's a company that um, allowed you to create a global career, travel all over the world, run businesses all over the world, uh, gave you early responsibility, made sure that uh, whenever there was a chance of getting bored, moved me on to the next challenge, and um, had great culture and great people. And there is so much to be grateful for, for this through this entire journey. So what happened with me was, uh, you know, the typical um, your FMCG career at that point of time, you start off in sales, huh? then you go into marketing, then at some point you aspire to go abroad and basically run a category globally. In my case, my career was actually, to begin with, was very slow. Mm. So uh, <laughs> what happened with me was I first started off as a management trainee in uh, the company. In those days, management training was quite 
interesting. You used to be sent into all these nice places. Uh, <laughs> and the first thing you learned was that, uh, you know, you may be this big hotshot MBA, you, you're an engineer MBA. And then you're trying to go into this little shop and sell this guy one piece of soap. And you think, please, please, please buy this piece of soap. And the guy says, get out of my shop. Say, okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, so it's humbling, no? It's humbling. And it's, it's fantastic because what it does is it teaches you humility. It teaches you how the real world works. It teaches you that people are the most important thing. It teaches you selling because selling is not really selling. Selling is being there at the right time when somebody wants to buy. So how can you make the conditions happen for somebody wanting to buy and be there at this, that time? Correct. That is how sales happens. Now, whether that's a big key account when you're negotiating with Walmart or whether that is an advertising campaign or whether that is the art of getting good ROAS Correct. on your ad spend, how, do you, how are you there at the right time when the buying decision is already almost done, right? Uh, so, um, to begin with, I remember my first uh, position. It was uh, management trainee, sales rep, Eastern UP, and I was based in a place called Gorakhpur, oh. which is famous now for other reasons. <laughs> Correct. And I used to cover Northanva, Azamgarh, Behraich, Gonda, Basti, all of these lovely places. East UP, right? East UP. So border of Bihar. Correct. And the way life used to work was I, I had basically 15 towns. Mm. And um, I used to visit each of these towns twice in a month. So You were what, 24, 25? I was at that time 23 years old. Okay. So I used to live in this uh, hotel called Hotel Kelas in um, uh, in uh, Gorakhpur. Huh? And the highlight of my life was when my boss used to come to visit me once a month and we were, he would take me for lunch in a place called the Ganges, <laughs> which is the Ganges Hotel. <laughs> so my room was 50 rupees a night wow. at that point of time. Wow. And what would happen is that you take a bus or kind of overnight or early morning, you land up at a town, you go to the distributor shop. And at that point of time, I think discipline wasn't very high. So what would happen is that this guy is selling whatever, three lakhs a month. He's holding inventory of 10 lakhs. He's bounced five lakhs worth of checks of the company. And so you come in and the first thing you say is, Ki, you have a target, you have to sell him some stuff. So you're like, you need to clear that check. And he says, why don't you count my stock first? <laughs> so I remember the first time I go there, he says, uh, so I say, oh yeah, let's count your stock. Show me your go down. So he says, this is my go down. So I count the stock. He says, fantastic. So he says, sir, there's some more. So then he takes me um, upstairs and uh, he's behind a cupboard. There's some stock. So, okay. Then he says, there's some more. Right? He takes me upstairs. This is bedroom. So I say, where's the stock? You open the sheet. The bed is cases of soap. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. So perhaps at some of the businesses were not very disciplined sometimes. And not computerized at all, right? No, there are no computers. So there's all notebook, pen, yeah, yeah. And tally. Also, what I would do as a sales rep is you used to have these uh, sheets which were that long and that high. Every skew, we used to have whatever, 150 skews at that time was written on the top. So you would write opening stock and you would write each of those. Then you would count how much stock the guy had today. Then you would look at each invoice and write how much he got. He got 20 pieces of whatever, Robin Blue. And he had an opening stock of 20. So now he's only got 10. So he should, therefore, his sales is 20 plus 20 minus 10. So that's 30. Correct. Now, what is he saying his sales is? So, you act, so he reports the sales, but you can actually calculate what his sales should be. Should be. And then you value that whole thing, right? And on that basis, you know how much he has sold out and therefore 
you know how much investment he needs to have in his business. Correct. Now, this seemed completely crazy at that point of time. But later in life, these are the disciplines that teach you that when you run a consumer business, you better know your inventory levels. Correct. You better work on negative working capital rather than positive working capital. Correct. And those lessons in life, they stay with you forever. But coming back to the story, so, so you go to this distributor, you do all of this, you realize, oh shit, actually, the deal with this guy, he's supposed to make, maintain four weeks investment in stock. Mm. Actually, he's got six weeks investment and he's got another six weeks in the whatever warehouse and there's no call for him to actually invest any more for the order, so you're not getting any order. So you go to the market and you go to the wholesale market first and then the retail market and you do 60 calls with the guy and you basically try to sell his stock. Liquidate his stock. And you do. You, you do, a, you know, heroic things <laughs> with heroic prices sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the day, you come back and say, look, now we have sold so much and so now you need to clear that check so you give me a demand draft so you make a demand draft. And then you basically get on a bus and go to the next place and you stay at night there uh, in a little hotel and then the same thing happens the next day. And this happens for 15 days as a cycle. You go around from Beraj to Basti to blah, 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 blah. Once in a while you get into his van and go into the villages. And uh, then at the end of the cycle you go back to Lucknow or wherever and there's a cycle meet where everybody puts their total numbers together, gets the promotions for the next cycle and off you go again. So. That's the start. That, uh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. So, but it's it's fantastic because it's completely humbling. It teaches you everything about life. It teaches you about what are the brands you would sell at that time in '94. What are the brands you were selling? So at that time we had uh, we started with Robin Blue. We had Cherry Blossom, the shoe polish, shoe polish. We had Dettol soap, and Dettol. We had Disprint. We had just launched Harpic in India at that time. We had just launched Dettol liquid soap. So we had. Was Dettol the first liquid soap in India? Or would it at all was the first liquid soap in India, mass liquid soap in India. And or just about there, Unilever had also launched some, I think, a Lux variant huh. around that time. But Palmolive and all were not, not there at all. No, didn't exist. So I remember I was in the launch conference of Detol Liquid Soap. I've been in the launch conferences of uh, Wheat. Huh. I've been in the launch conferences of Mortine. Launch conferences of um, um, Lysol. So all these brands that seem old. <laughs> were actually new and shiny at all, at some time. Quite literally Quite new and literally. shiny. So anyway, so this management training stint happens. This happens for six months. Then they put you into a into a marketing stint where you now start doing fun stuff. You're dealing with marketing, advertising agencies. It's fantastic, right? <laughs> so straight away from hell into heaven. <laughs> uh, in the This was in Bombay? Yeah, or in uh, Delhi. In Delhi, okay. And after that, um, they post you as a, uh, what we call an RSM. Uh, these days it's called an ESM, but yeah. we were very proud because we were the only company who were called RSMs. <laughs> the job was the ESM, of course. So I was ESM Karnataka. So what the company does very early is it gives you huge responsibility. Uh-huh. So at the age of 24, I'm now running Karnataka. I have a sales team in Bangalore. I have a sales team in upcountry. And I also have a medical rep team. So there are something like 20 people reporting to me. At 24 years old. At 24 years old. I have... Uh, fairly significant targets for growth and I have um, a lot of freedom in how I spend my time and how you show up there actually then defines everything else after that. So how to work with teams, how to think about large numbers. So even at that point of time, the company was not very big, but Karnataka may have been, let's call it a business of 60, 70 lakhs a month or crore a month. And I'm talking about 95, 95. Mm. So 
so i did that for a period of time uh, and while most of my friends would do one such stint and then go and become brand managers somehow my boss wanted to hold on to me so i was sent to a second stint so i now did chennai and tamil nadu and i basically was in sales for a long long time four years did you learn the local language did you learn kannada uh, and tamil i never have learned the local language properly and that includes um, all the states i've been in the south chinese wherever i've been in life however i always pick up enough that i can understand 60% of what's happening and people are scared that i understand a bit more than what you actually do that i actually do <laughs> so, and uh, what i always understand in every language are the numbers so i can uh, calculate and i if you tell me numbers in chinese or malayalam tamil kannada telugu i can tell you i know what you're talking about right hindi all those languages correct because eventually all of these things are about negotiations with people negotiations are about uh, emotion and mathematics when the so you start always with uh, with the uh, facts yeah if that's not going well switch very quickly to emotion <laughs> that is so and vice versa correct correct anyway so i i did that for a while then i came back and did the marketing stint that was fantastic i worked on a brand called mortin uh and was the competition for mortin that time when you were thinking well all out was there or all out would so i worked as a management trainee when i came into the uh, center i worked on mortin for a very short period of time uh-huh. that time mortin had just been launched that year it was less than 20 lakhs in sales oh yeah yeah so the first launch of mortin this had just happened and um, so i worked on that for 6 months right and then when i came back as a brand manager Mortin at that point of time had already become quite uh, interesting it had become whatever 20 30 crores already wow and uh, i did uh, brand management in mortin for about 3 years at that point of time the market leader in coils was tortoise kachwa chap and good night was uh, strong in electric in max this godrej right godrej ah. and all out had just been launched at that point right so this is way back i later again worked on mortin and i mortin as a brand was very close to me still very close mortin ka form factor kya tha was it the spray or was it that thing so we started up with coil okay we started with all form factors everything failed except okay. coil right <laughs> so so the form factor by default became coil but you didn't do the odomas cream thing and all that uh we did not do the cream okay the, uh but we did coils we did mats we did uh, sprays sprays and we did liquids eventually uh-huh. right and what happened with mortin was we uh, it very quickly became mar- close to market leader started competing for market leadership in coils issue became supply so we, we set up factories all over the place to produce these coils and then eventually it did become market leader so when i came back as a brand manager on mortin uh, which i did for a few years that time the brand went from uh, let's call it 3 or 4 million pounds at that point of time to 20 million pounds in 3 or 4 years and that was like a huge growth spurt for the brand and we actually um did quite well at that point of time the company decided that there was a disaster happening in sales and you are needed and i was sent <laughs> off to sales again and as i'm i'm going to understand your cohort mates from i am calcutta or your other well, they were kind of doing they were all a, uh, they had all become marketing managers by then and they were all in the process of uh, moving to their first international jobs wow and you were called back to sales so i was called back to sales right So I did sales. Did you have an option to say no? I'm not going to do. Uh, I think an option was always there. 
but at that point of time i i think we didn't have at least i didn't have that much of a world view and i used to feel that look if i look at the general manager of the com- managing director of the company that time it's a 55 60 65 60 year old guy who spent his career doing this so i felt that if i achieved that if i became head of india or head of the southern region by the age of 45 this would be living success right Correct. this would be beyond my dreams so in that pathway this was a great job to do because being regional manager south which is what they wanted me to do which was in a mess that time was uh, it's about leading four states it's about leading distribution at that point of time into 125000 stores yeah. it's a uh, direct sales team managing a quarter of the country's business it's called general manager south and uh, the life experience you get by running your own team of maybe 200 people but an extended distributor team of like 2000 3000 people at the age of 27 28 whatever it was is fantastic and the people i looked up to had done those jobs at the age of 40 right at that time so it was faster than your mentors than my mentors it was slower than my peers so my peers now by now had started going to the uk and they had now become what were called t400 managers in the company which is global uh, it's that becomes like a global cadre which is managed as a central it's like the ias right so and these people become what were called gbmms which is basically a brand director so a friend of mine was brand director for mortine globally globally at the time when i came back as marketing manager for mortine in india and he was one year senior to me right so I was clearly behind. At that, when I came back, by then Mortin was in trouble. What had happened for the last two years was we had a bright idea. The bright idea was called triple coil. Okay. So the thing with coils is that you have a sheet of uh, material mm-hmm. and you have a punch, and the punch makes it the shape. Correct. The shape is punched in a way that you can separate those two coils. Correct. The sheet burns at a particular rate, which basically gives you so supposedly eight hours of. duration duration correct so we figured out that actually you can change the material quality or, or the c- composition so it burns a bit slower and now actually instead of 8 hours you can get 11 hours so what you could also do is you could punch that thing so now you have three coils rather than two oh, wow each of which lasts 8 hours wow right so theoretically fantastic because coils were selling at 1 and 1/2 rupees per coil so two coils were selling for 3 rupees now we could sell three coils for 3 rupees which was So still giving you the same hours ha huh. so in theory so as they say good from far but far from good in reality <laughs> <laughs> because what happened was that there is uh, illusion and there is reality so the illusion was that in lab conditions it lasts hours what everyone forgot was nobody works in lab conditions and people actually use fans so when you use a fan and you light a coil what should last for hours lasts only 6 but consumers don't know that so what was happening was that the regular coil was only lasting 6 hours when people switch on a fan right this coil also lasted 6 hours but consumers were suspicious of it because it was smaller so consumer said this is a useless coil oh so the thing tanked it's crazy you know yeah it's crazy crazy wow okay so this is an example of being perfectly correct but perfectly wrong right what <laughs> our board members told us the other day They don't go after things that are mathematically correct and conceptually wrong. And conceptually wrong, because it's logical, right? Yeah. If you sell something that's smaller to consumers, consumers are going to be suspicious, right? Why should you be surprised about this? Anyway, so that night, by the time I came back, 
So Maxo as a brand had just been launched. Goodnight had got into coils. Then got so NetNet we were getting screwed, and the brand was had gone up to twenty five million and was back to twenty million. So I now again we need you. So it was now you need to fix this. So work on this. So I spent three years as a marketing manager on Motin, and my mandate was that uh, uh, we had a competitor. I'm not going to name them, but we did not like them at all, and we wanted to grow our business so fast that they were forced to sell to us. Okay. So I, I don't think these things are all politically correct <laughs> these days, but anyway, that was what it used to be in those days. So. And it did happen actually. So we set up a very interesting strategy. We had some very interesting learnings, and I think some of these learnings are still very relevant in when you think about mass distribution in India. So I'll, I'll tell you two learnings. So at that point of time, we had, we didn't make much money on Motin. Why? Because we used to do a lot of media, huge penetration opportunity. We used to do a lot of promotion, highly competitive, and at the same time, trade was starting to become important. So you had to spend a lot on trade. So the margins on the business was zero. So it was very difficult. So we had this insight that actually Mortine at that time was distributed in nine lakh stores, was zero point nine million stores. Uh, sorry, one point four million stores. Ah. Goodnight was distributed in one point three million stores, and Maxo was also distributed in about one point three, one point four million stores. But when you look at the Solus distribution, how many stores only Mortine is distributed in? It and was no other company, no other coil. Why? Because the total category may have been in four million. Correct. Right. The reason, what happens is, as it goes lower and lower, the retailer does not have enough money to stock three brands of a category like coil or soap, actually, or Harpic, and therefore they make a choice. So the retailer stocks one, one. brand of coil. If you go down, so there are nine hundred thousand people who stock only Motin, about eight hundred thousand who stock only Goodnight, and about eight hundred nine hundred who stock only Maxo, and there are actually four hundred thousand who stock more or less all of them, right? So in the ones who stock all of them, forget those for now. What I'm trying to do is increase the number of retailers who only stock me. Convert the others to. So convert the others to me. So how do I do that? So actually, my direct distribution as a company is only 500,000 outlets, but the category is in 14, 1.4 million. So the only way I can influence those people is through wholesale. So what do I need to do? I need to have a pull from the consumer who asks for Motin, and I need to have a push from the wholesaler. So I figured that this 10 plus 4 promo that we were doing is helpful, but it's not adding value to any of this. So we took this dramatic decision of cutting all our promotions. Everybody else was doing a ten plus four, for whatever fifteen rupees. We said we'll sell ten coils for fifteen rupees, but we saved forty percent, and we put that forty percent in wholesale promotions. So we started doing things like case of Mortin coil, sixty coils in a case, so six hundred coils, six hundred single coils. One truck is forty-two thousand coils. I can tell you even today. You buy a truck of coils. I send you on a trip to Bangkok as a wholesaler. You buy four trucks of coil. Keep one of the trucks that came. The coil came on, and send three back. Wow! Because the gatekeeper is wholesale. So we spent a lot of money on media, wow. and media deep rural. Get the pull to get the pull so that the brand name was there, and the brand was acceptable. And then we pushed like hell through wholesale. 
which was completely counterintuitive because mm-hmm. every good F- FMCG person will tell you, mm-hmm. you should do the right thing, <laughs> do the retail distribution. Correct. So we did that also. But so what ended up happening was, <clears throat> and also we started launching other stuff and so on, you know, innovation. So between uh, the years 2001 and 2000, 2002 and 2005, Mortin India was the number two one, even close to the number one growth driver of the company in the world from a revenue point of view. We grew from 20 million pounds to close to 40 plus million pounds, 20, we doubled the brand in two years. And at that point of time, Mortin as a single brand became the number one brand in pest control in India, bigger than Goodnight during that period. That's incredible. This is 98, 99. This is 2001, 2002, 2003, that, that period. So now this company that um, we were talking about actually did decide that this was quite competitive and they decided to look out for options. Wow. So then it again became, uh, you should spend some time looking at this. So I spent a year of my life working on the acquisition of a company, which eventually we didn't decide to do for other reasons. Uh, uh, and again, getting further and further behind my peers. Right? So <laughs> by the time I got to London in 2005, <laughs> you had spent 10 years in Reckitt. Uh-huh. I had spent 10 years in Reckitt and other people had left in six, seven, uh, say the best performing ones, right? So you were in Reckitt India for 10 years. 10, 11 years. And these people now were at the point of moving to a country, back to a country to become a marketing director. Right? And I was like three or four years behind. So I worked as a, a global brand marketing manager on a brand, one brand uh, called Harpik. Yeah. Great strength, really enjoyed it, very good. At the end of that, my boss comes to me and says, you know, <laughs> you should do one more. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> Why do you want me to do one more? He says, look, uh, the stint I want you to do is on a brand called Finish. It is the, in- the emotional heart of our company. Globally. Globally. That time it was a 800 million pound, billion dollar plus brand. Wow. And uh, the heartland was Europe. We had a 65, 70% share. And PNG was just launching Ferry in uh, Europe. Wow. Would you tell the, like, finish for the viewers is a dishwasher brand. Yeah, it's a, a tablet and liquid and powder that you put in the dishwasher to wash your dishes. Correct. So the way that this category works is to begin with, very few people have dishwashers, but as the economy is expand, 50-60% of people have dishwashers. So if you have a 60% share in that market, as more and more people get dishwashers, it becomes a massive category. And good profit pool. So fantastic profit pool. So if you look at a manual plus automatic dishwash, because at automatic dishwash can be priced higher and is much more profitable. Mm. Today in a country like the UK, the automatic dishwasher market will be bigger than manual dish significantly. And the profit pool will be more than three times. Wow. Okay. It's a highly profitable, okay. good, good category, really uh-huh. good business to be in. It also has all of the e-commerce characteristics of um, regular usage, of large basket sizes, of uh, easy transportation, all that. Easy transportation, small size, all of that. Right. So a lot of the learnings for later e-commerce all came from finish. This to finish. Also, there are the success models that we have or the co- various companies have in areas like this on how to grow brands. And these, are appli- these frameworks are applicable everywhere. So essentially, you can uh, grow the number of loads. In a, so think about dishwasher as a proxy for life, right? So how do you, <laughs> how do you deliver yes. s- more sales of dishwashing detergents? Huh. You can either sell more loads or you can sell more value per load. Correct. How do you sell more loads? By actually... Um, getting more people to buy, yeah. getting them to use it more often, 
So that leads to programs called penetration improvement program and frequency improvement program. You tell people dishwasher is better, consumes less water, consumes less energy, kills all the germs, all of that. And you can do that with your machine partners. And then how do you increase the value per dose? You keep innovating. So you buy the basic product, it's 10 pence per tab. You buy a better one, 12 pence, ah. even better one, 20 pence, best one, 40 pence. Over a period of time, more and more people get to the best one, so your average price goes up. Correct. Then you tell people, oh, you have other needs. So now your dishwasher smells bad, so let's send you a deal for it. <laughs> your glasses don't, are not like diamonds, so here's a glass protector. So you, so you basically have more people more often and then at a higher price, and then each of these gets broken into small bits, and then you can have teams working on each of those bits. Right? So it ended up being great learning. I spent a year and a half doing that. I, in, in London. In London, I created a global campaign which ran for many years, it was called the Diamond Standard. What I was however promised was that, look, you do this and we'll give you, you'll catch up a little bit, right? So we'll give you a large marketing director role. So what used to happen in those days is as a GBMM, you'd go as a small country marketing director, then you'd go as a large country marketing director, then a small country general manager, then a large country general manager, so like this yo-yo. Huh. So, so, and I, I also wanted the stamp of, um, you know, one of these large European markets. We had Spain, 500 million euros. We had, you know, Germany, 300, 400 million. So there was the soft commitment, softly, softly thing that we'll give you one of the large European markets. Who was your boss that time? Was it Rakesh only? Uh, no, no. So my boss at that time, so the guy I was having these conversations with was a mm. great manager of people, a guy called Rob de Groot, mm. who eventually was the president of the company and also decided to retire. So he, he was the president at uh, the same time eventually that I was as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So we became peers much later. Yeah. I, I mean, I would never say I was really a peer to Rob because, uh, I mean, I would have, even today, I would happily work for Rob. Ever. Wow. Okay. So anyway, so NetNet, the CEO of the company calls me and says, uh, we have an interesting new job for you. So I'm like, so it's probably Germany or Spain. Spain. <laughs> no, I want you to go to China. <laughs> like, why do you want to send me to China? The <laughs> history of record in China at that time was not great, right? We had uh, a small business, $15 million around. Uh, Used to lose $15 million. Oh, wow. So the person told, the CEO told me like, uh, look, the tragedy in life is not that I have wired in like $100 million into China, which we have lost. The tragedy in life is I don't have any learnings for that. <laughs> <laughs> And we had this history of, um, you know, the company was probably not very patient. So history of losing people in China. So the last five general managers had left or been fired, management team had been fired. So I asked the CEO, I remember this and maybe the words are a bit here and there, but in a sense I said, so like, why are you sending me there? So he says, you, I thought I was going to a you know bigger market. He says, look, I can always send you to a place like Germany. But, and this is a lesson in life, I prioritize based on growth. I don't prioritize based on size only. So what this means is if I'm, you're in Germany and you grow at 3%, 400 million business growing at 3%, you'll grow me 10 million euros a year, 12 million. In China, I think you can double the business every year for many years. And the net delta that I can build in China with you is higher than you, I would build in Germany. So I think it's more strategic for you to go to China, but of course it's higher risk. So you have to think this through. So I asked him, so you know, the last five guys who went there, all of them got fired. Uh, so how will that work for me? So he says, I like you very much and I can always get you back into a role in the center. So you can have a safety net, but I know you, you'll feel so frustrated if it doesn't go well, you'll leave anyway, so I might as well fire you. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 
so he made his job very easy actually no but uh, you know the uh, think that there are companies that have direct cultures and there are companies that have indirect cultures so in this case we had a very direct culture act but it was not a malicious culture and it used to say things as it were as they were right and this was a good data point for me to have when i had the conversation with my wife because uh, he could also have sugar coated it right and i could have had the wrong information in which case i may have made the wrong decision also but here i'm going into it with my eyes open it's my choice i could choose to say no i don't want to do that and there's no hard feeling it's yeah. okay so in a sense radical honesty and radical transparency can appear to be brutal correct but that's actually right. there's a caring in the that brutality so that's such a big learning even for like in personal life it's not just something with companies and people it's yeah. also with relationships with friendships with, with sure and you know in life unfortunately i've had to let people go and these are horrible experiences but when you let people go you can very often you know that that person is not working great in your culture is not achieving what the company wants but more importantly it's not achieving what that person wants nobody is working for you to stagnate at the same level if you are clear that this person is not moving up because they lack some skills or lack some capabilities this person may not stagnate somewhere else there may be another place another company where this person could rise could become ceo why are you stopping this person in your false drive to provide comfort to that person in a sense but actually in that false drive to avoid the tough discussion yourself that's so true because on this the person yeah. on this podcast we've discussed this multiple times personally for me it's a very difficult thing to do very difficult because you also in my case or you know in young company's case you hired all of them you hired also the decision comes only to you it's not five people coming together and convincing you that it needs to be done or like a process is in place for you to say clearly that it's not working out in our case something that's all based on gut or like a small amount of data points so becomes very very difficult but i think the more i think about it, the more i realize it's a service to the other person Absolutely, if you don't think of them in the highest possible so, way, because you need to think about people's lives as a longitudinal, a long period of time, and every role and every job is a step to the next thing. To the next thing, and if that role and is not taking them to the next thing, is not giving them the right skills or the right attitude or the right belief in themselves, if their belief in themselves is being crushed, then either it's it's your job to help them fix it by supporting them, but if it is not going to work, then it's also your job to. make sure that they know about it right so they can also decide and then you support them through that process correct so anyway so we land i asked my wife what what we should do she's all so success in life can totally be attributed to having stability at home at least for me and what's her name seema okay. seema so she was fantastic about it she said okay look what's the worst that can happen right maybe we get fired in china maybe there'll be lots of opportunity and i'm like look, look this is a arrogant right 15 million dollar business in a country like china if you give me a 15 million dollar business in delhi metro and ask me to double it over 10 years can i do it if my life is taken it of course i can yeah. what's the big deal <laughs> so we are going to go to china so we land up wow. land up in china in 2008 just at the cusp of the olympics and the great news now wow this china had So I've got some stats for you for between China and India. We'll come back to this later. China at that point in time is a 4.5 trillion dollar economy that has had a few years of opening up. China liberalization started in 1976, India in 1991. 15 years difference, right? And it had started becoming English friendly with the Olympics. So you had signs in English everywhere. Uh, I I think 
when you work in China, it's not like it's portrayed at all in the news. People are very warm. Uh, it's it's really a warm culture. Uh, people actually have a lot of freedom of expression and what they want to do. People in st the street are relatively happy, actually. And there is a whole Chinese dream. The Chinese dream is like the American dream used to be. The suburban American dream, right? Yeah. So, so America is the land of opportunity, right? Anybody can become rich. So in China, the, the liberalization started when their chairman, Deng Xiaoping, went to a city called Shen Shenzhen and said, to be rich is glorious. And that ignited a billion Chinese to become rich. Right? So this wave was going on. Well, I think about China is like, I, I've been there a few times. I've never lived there, but been there a few times. No religion. Or very, very limited religious undertones to society. Very, um, you're right. I think the when standard of living, in like the migration of the Chinese up the standard of living ladder, as a country of a billion people, was very obvious. So when you start putting money in people's pockets, I think everything else kind of, everything explodes. Including the environment, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> so the negative, of course, at that time was China. Beijing used to be like Delhi is today, which is polluted like hell, right? People used to call it smog because they didn't know it was pollution. And I was quite okay because people used to tell me, Don't, doesn't the smog bother you? I said, well, I come from Delhi. <laughs> and nobody talks about that because politically nobody was interested at that time. Right? Correct. This is actually a lot better even then. But anyway, net net, I was in China in 2008, marketing director. And I started working. I had a boss. And sure enough, six months later, my boss got fired. What are the brands of record brands in so China? I, that time? We actually had a brand called Power 28. So we had acquired a company which was a low-level detergent company that made no money at a negative 20% gross margin. And was a, you know, in, they had a factory, this company, in a place close to Wuhan. And the logic there was that this is a liquid detergent and therefore it should be close to the market. So let's put a factory, or these guys put a factory, which is close, equally close to Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. That's the good news. The bad news is that it was equally far, <laughs> because it's 1,300 kilometers from each. So bang in the center of China, close to the city of Wuhan, which will come back later in the story too, at COVID, we have a factory, which was the largest second factory in China. So we had a brand called Dosia. We had just launched Dettol, tried to roll it out too fast, got screwed, pulled it back to a eight-city thing. It was five million pounds at that time. And that was it. We had finished, which was a hundred thousand dollars. That was And Dettol was called Dettol or did it have a Chinese name on This is also another story. <laughs> so Dettol was um, called Dilu. Okay. So what happened in China is that um, everything has a Chinese name. And the Chinese name so you go to China and you stay in the Hilton. So you go outside and say, I want to go to the Hilton. Nobody knows what the Hilton is. But the Hilton will be called some XYZ in Chinese. And you need to know that Chinese name. So uh, in this case, what happened was Dettol was, so Reckitt expanded with the British Empire. So it went very strong in Australia, very strong in Hong Kong, very strong in India, South Africa. It was a very empire company, right? Mm -hmm. That way. So Hong Kong was very strong. So at some point in the dim history of time, Dettol was launched in Hong Kong. Dettol is the number one strong market in the world for Dettol is Hong Kong. Dettol for Shabajan has a close to 25% share wow. in personal wash. It's massive. So they needed to create a Chinese name for Dettol. 
So they tried to find something phonetically similar. So they called it De Lao. That's in Cantonese. That sounds like that all. It means dewdrop. Okay. So something like that all, which is uh, this, let's say, antiseptic liquid being called the soft dewdrop is not totally consistent. Correct. <laughs> now, in Chinese, the same characters in yeah. Mandarin, when you read it, it sounds like Dilu. Okay. So now you, that all is called Dilu in China. So not only does it not sound like that all, it also means dewdrop. Wow. Right. So Coke had a name at one point in China, which uh, basically meant horrible things in your mouth. And then they realized it and they changed it to curler, which basically means heaven in your mouth. Really? Yeah. So the naming is so the cultural. cultural. Yeah. Anyway, so net net we had these really tiny brands and we had missed the bus, right? So normally racket would be one eighth, one tenth of a company like Unilever anywhere in the world. And Unilever, I don't know the number at that time, but may have been 800 million in China. We were like 10 million, right? And China had this really complex structure where you had uh, distributors, then you had modern trade. So you used to pay money to distributors to then go to modern trade. And then the media cost in China was really expensive because it was a collection of monopolies in local markets, like government monopoly. And it was just impossible. So to, for one GRP in China, in the city of Beijing would cost me more than one GRP in all of India for all my brands. So really? per GRP was 10x the cost for us at that time that the US was, just to show you. And we had such a small business. So Rackets model always around the world always had been that you have relatively small categories. Uh, you start when the category is small, like auto dish when no one has a dishwasher. You can establish the right price point, which gives you a high gross margin. So Reket as a company had a gross margin of, uh, let's call it high 50s, 60s in, in uh, surface care kind of categories, where at the time maybe a Procter or a Unilever may have had high 40s or at best low 50s. So significantly low, a higher margin. Then you take that margin and you invest much more in marketing. So Reket is not the largest company in the world, but it is a top 10 advertiser for many years globally. In India, it's the number two advertiser, for example. Really? Yeah. For years. So what you do is you put that money back on these really strong brands which have a disproportionate share of the profit pool, which then is focused on growing the category. So Reckitt will always tell you why using a dishwasher is good. It will always tell you why you should use an antiseptic soap. Not a that is Dettol is, is that why you should use a specialized toilet cleaner, not phenyl. So it's all about category creation and this category creation is done over years and decades and it goes up this S-curve and that S-curve is highly predictable and it requires consistency. This goes completely against how people have told us to build them. Just look for large markets and then price pre and then and then break on price. Look for, in your case you're saying, look for small markets that are going to grow. It depends on what your price. growth framework is. So if you want a really robust business, which is going to last, as the Chinese say, for Alibaba, they said, I want a business that lasts 102 years. Oh, 102, okay, let's not go there. <laughs> but if you're really building for the future and you're happy to be the giant on whose shoulders other people will build, oh. then I think the racket model is an amazing model. Correct. And what happens over a period of time is you have then categories at different levels of penetration. So you've got categories which are still in hyper growth and still young, but then you've got categories which are now massive and you end up with a dominant, uh, no dominant, because Reket is never dominant and never has dominant behavior, but you end up with a significant share, share of a category. You typically end up at close to the highest price point 
if somebody out innovates you and is priced higher than you, then it's your challenge to out innovate them and get the leadership because eventually your innovation needs to be rewarded by pricing. Correct. And of that does not mean that you don't sell products cheap, but you take that promise and then you find a way to make that promise live in an affordable format, an affordable pricing, sizing format for whoever your target audience is, right? But it should not take away the fact that you should be the gold standard of equity for the for the category. And that propels you to be innovative. Otherwise, you cannot do that. So the company's DNA was always about spending more than anybody else behind its brands, growing categories and driving innovation. And then you have great operations by reducing cost all the time, working on negative working capital. Some of our countries used to work at minus 15, minus 20 percent. You would explain what negative working capital means for, for, the, for, the, for our well, viewers who may not know this. The, the way negative, oh, so look, what happens in um, a consumer business or, or any business is you end up spending uh, a lot of money on working capital. So what is working capital? Let's say you sell uh, a product, you sell soap. Now you produce that soap, so you've got inventory, so that's sitting with you. Then you have to pay your suppliers, so you owe them money. And then your customers need to pay you and you typically have to give them credit. So what ends up happening is that you have to put more and more money into the business. And for people who are running small startups and who are looking for capital and are in consumer businesses, what they don't realize is that a lot of the capital is going into funding the day-to-day -day needs of the company Correct. rather than the strategic growth drivers of the company. Correct. And every time you launch a new SKU, you add complexity. And when you add more complexity, you have more money stuck in inventory, more money in obsolescence, Correct. more money stuck with your customer. And you need to keep, keep raising money for what is actually a very non-productive expenditure. Correct. So the way it used to work in Reckitt is that everybody had a target KPI on which they are bonus to revenue, profit, but networking capital. So the aim of the company always is to work at negative networking capital. What this means is that uh, if I am buying something from someone. I am going to pay them later. So and I am going to build that into the contract. I may pay them in 120 days, 180 days, 365 days, whatever it is. But this is not bad, it's not unfair because it's transparent, it's built into the contract and if the person wants to negotiate and have a slightly higher price because of that compared to other people, well, it's okay because we we're conscious that our cost structure may be bumped up a bit because of that. Yeah. On the other side, on your customers, as far as possible, you want your customers to pay you in advance or you want to spend as, give as little credit mm -hmm. as possible. Correct. If you do that, if you have a hundred dollars of sales, you've got the money from hundred dollars from your customers already the moment you've sold it. But there is a period of time where you have not paid the $70 to your Suppliers. So now you're sitting on 20 or $30 of surplus. Okay. This surplus adds to your cash flow. And in business, cash is king. Correct. So you end up with a business that spins off cash. Correct. And is never desperate, therefore. Right? Because the thing that kills startups other than founder fights Correct. is cash. Correct. So this discipline of maintaining cash, and as you scale from a small business to a large business, it requires a very clear framework with very few exceptions to that framework. And typically people don't get this even in large companies because working capital is something that is left to finance. It's not a KPI for operational operative management. And some 
I think the guys who set up Rekit Benkiza at the start, the management team who combined Benkiza and Rekit and Kuhlman, were geniuses because there are four or five things they did when they set up that company, which actually set the uh, systems and the mindset that completely made this, comp you know, for a period of 15 years, it outperformed every FMCG company in the world in terms of total stock returns on the stock market. But all of that came from the culture and the tools that were built and what became normal behavior at the company. So in that, in that company, if you had a positive working capital, it's terrible. You're going to get killed in every review. Yeah. Just for you guys, working capital, as I said, right, is inventory plus receivable minus payable. So if you look at consumer product businesses, typically you would want someone to minimize inventory without going out of stock. So you should have enough inventory to service, but not so much that it's sitting there. You should minimize the receivables because you have to collect quickly as Adi was saying and maximize payable. So when, when you say, why is someone not paying on time? Why are people kind of holding on to cash? It's not because people don't want to pay you. They just want to pay you late, right? So anyone managing a business is, and working capital is inventory plus receivable minus payable. Negative working capital means this is negative, which means people are paying you upfront and you are paying much later. So you're always sitting on more cash. And if you look at a year long period, you'll typically generate more cash than the revenue of the business. If you're in a negative working capital cycle, over and over. And again. what makes a business effective, uh, efficient, is return on cash employed, your ROC yeah, metric. Correct. And there are two ways to drive that. One is to increase the return, the other is to reduce the cash employed. Yeah, correct. And that makes you a better business or a worse business. Correct. Even more than your profits in some cases. Correct. So, uh, so we had this uh, business in China and um, I learned to my horror that this was like a little monster. So what's a little monster when you, in, in business? A little monster is a business which you feed cash and it becomes bigger, but now it's a big monster. So you have to pay even more cash. <laughs> Why does this give me so many deja vu feelings <laughs> of, of startups in India, including my own one? Go on. <laughs> yeah, so you don't really want to grow a monster, little or big, right? Okay. So you want to grow a business that eventually is, that's virtuous. So, and that also huge cultural learnings because what works in, in so I, I thought I was an expert at sales in India because I spent so many years in sales, right? So I know how this works. I know you create a beat plan and then you've got people who go store by store. Yeah. These stores need to be next to each other mm. so that you maximize the number of stores you cover. Uh, you give your guys handhelds so that they can take pictures of the shelves. So you can monitor exactly what's happening. You can you use some kind of intelligence even 15 years ago where you can tell people, prompt people, this store, this is the SKU that is out of stock. All good in theory. Because in China, what I realized was that it was a relationship market. And I realized this very late. So I went on a trip with one of my salespeople in Shanghai and she got onto a train, traveled one and a half hours in one direction and met, hung around in a store for one hour doing nothing and then got a one minute conversation with the store manager and she was like, okay. And then we got on a train and went to the other side of Shanghai and now she met a uh, sales girl who she trained for half an hour uh -huh. and then we got on a train and went somewhere else for one hour and now we met a key account customer where we negotiated something where we got screwed and <laughs> came back. So, and I was like, how do you build a business like this? You can't, right? So we got in this global consultant team, my favorite people, consultants. <laughs> uh, and they actually built a route plan and a beat plan and we set it up and it was all great. And we said, look, every salesperson is going to go to a particular place in the morning. They, in the morning, they wake up, they look at the handle. The handle will tell them, go there. That's the start of the route. Then there are six stores in the route. And when the moment you go to the store, you take a picture of the shelf. Then you talk to the customer. Then you do. The, then you go to the next store. Now you do ten stores in a day. You are done. You go home. 
good. 100% of my people left. So I ended up in a situation where all the sales... Was it because the plans were not uh, accurate or were no, it hard or what? Num- number of reasons. So first, the plans were accurate, huh. but this is not how they worked. So in China, the way it used to work was a relationship basis. So these people had good relationships with their stores and they would spend that one hour in the store figuring out what's where, but in that five minutes with the store manager, they would get all decisions that are needed. They would get the order. It's done. Okay. Right. Now, and that one hour rambling around the store was important because you knew what you wanted from that store manager more than any technology would tell you. Correct. Then the second thing was that every company, many companies worked that way and we were not really paying anyone more than anybody else. So people were like, why do I have to follow this crazy thing which nobody else does? Correct. When everybody, I have 50 jobs waiting for me. Correct. And in one fell swoop, we realized that we disrupted all our account relationships. Because even when you get new people coming in, now they don't know that store manager. It's going to take them a year to know the store manager. The store manager has no time for them. So that other original person they would meet after one hour, but this person they would never meet because they could never. This person could never even see them. Yeah. So you never got the order. And by the time these people got to know the store managers, a year had passed and the business had tanked and your average sale was low. Shit. And net net we ended up in a situation where even a 15 or 20 million business we learned rather than doubling could actually decline right so this was really the situation in 2009 2010 where around that time we acquired a brand called durex globally wow so durex was a good brand in china in the sense that it was about a 25 30 million brand so we said that at that time there was something called Weibo. Weibo was a copy of Twitter and Facebook rolled into one. It was a very new social media platform. There was no WeChat, none of this existed. No Alibaba, nothing. So we said we are going to create do a, how do we have fun? We have very low marketing budgets. We are going to create a Valentine's Day party okay. for Durex. Okay. And this was like a year into acquiring it. This was six, four months into acquiring it. We are going to do a Valentine's Day party. So we do a Durex party. That Durex party has connotation, right? So how do you do, do, do a Durex party? So we will hire a nightclub and we will have a capacity for 5,000 people. And the way it works is you have to become a fan of Durex on Weibo, which we open a new page. You have to invite five other people. If they also become fans, then all six of you get an invite and you can come. Okay. So we got a thousand people into that party that night. We streamed that party live back in 2010. Right, and from there onwards, the social media story of Durex started. Durex, really, on an average from 2010 till 2016, we had a net gain of a thousand fans a day, every day. But how was it happening after the party was done? Because we learned, so for, after the party we were up to 5,000 people. Then ah. we started doing fun stuff. We actually got an agency uh, which was very quirky, who started tweeting on Weibo. And this was still new. So I'll give you an example. The first time we hit a tweet that broke Weibo in China, became the number one tweeted item in all of China across every category, was when it was raining in Beijing. And one of these kids figured that you could actually use Durex on your shoes. 
So I still have that tweet. So this person took a picture of his feet and says, it's raining in Beijing. Thankfully, I have tourists. And he posts this, right? So this now becomes the number one trending item tweet in all of China across every platform. So crazy. What we then started to do was we developed a voice for the brand. We developed a, a calendar. And what we did was anything that was happening in the world, we tried to take a Durex view to it. A bit like what Amul does Amul, in India. Yeah, correct. And also what Durex eventually now does in India also. Okay. So if you follow Durex, I okay. started doing a lot of that. Okay. You would know that well. Correct. So we, and then we started doing fun stuff all the time. So I'll give you some examples of fun stuff. We started a whole team that was into gaming. So how does this, have you heard of the game Flappy Bird? Yes. So Flappy Bird, that's an interesting story. There was a founder who created this game. <laughs> and basically you had these, uh, uh, up and down you have uh, kind of no goal zone and you keep tapping and the bird keeps going up and yeah. down and you navigate it through the Correct. danger, right? Correct. Uh, the story is that the guy who created it after a month or what, six months said, oh my God, what have I created? I've gone crazy. And then he left the world, deleted the game and retired to Indonesia somewhere and vanished. <laughs> but what we did as Durex was we created a HTM. We had a studio that created an HTML game called Flappy Sperm. Okay. So you have the sperm which is trying to hide from the Durex, which is like that. And it's your job to navigate this guy through. Yeah. So the day Flappy Bird dropped, the next day this game was out. It's called Flappy Sperm. Oh, Flappy Sperm, right? And then you have, um, uh, you you had the, you remember the 2048 game? Yeah, yeah. You slide the tiles correct, together. Correct. So we did a version of that the day after it dropped. Um, we created an app which became one of the top five apps on the Chinese app store for a while. It was called the Durex Baby. Okay. So you can uh, check it out on YouTube. So the way the Durex Baby works is you download the app on two phone, phones and you basically rub the phones together. About one in three times the baby is born. Okay. Right. This baby, <laughs> it's like a little Tamagotchi kind of thing, right? Okay. So it's going to irritate the hell out of you. It's going to scream in meetings. You have to pat to it. You have to sing to it. You have... And the way to get rid of it is to make sure to, is to slide down with the Durex. So that's the... so. Crazy stuff that's like insane. that. That's insane. Yeah, and I'll tell you another one. We did one called Travel with Love. So, okay. so we were launching uh, toys, vibrators, right? We had, as well, there's no money, huh? uh, under-supported. And at the same time, it was not really uh, allowed to advertise these kind of things, right? Uh, uh, was, was, it, was it taboo in China to some extent? You know, let me tell you a universal cultural insight. In every culture that you go to, including China and India, we are the good people, principled people, and all these foreigners are the people who are into all this kinky stuff. Now, not the case, right? No, every place is actually into the same stuff. But everybody thinks that they are conservative. So every Indian thinks that, oh, we are so conservative. And it's this, you know, American people in Thailand who behave like that. <laughs> but you go to Thailand and if you ignore those one or two streets and you talk to a normal person, they are like, we are so conservative and they are. And it's all these Americans who have come and done this to us. And if you go to China, Chinese are like, oh, we are so conservative. And it's all these people from outside who <laughs> behave like this. Right? <laughs> so it's true everywhere. So very, so quite conservative. Huh. And what ended up happening was we had no money. So we said, how can we have some fun with this? So we found a couple who wanted to settle down in a city called Shangri-La. So we said, okay, we're going to give you some money to do that, to help you in your starting your life. 
what you need to do for us is you need to travel from Beijing to Shanghai to Chengdu to Wuhan to Delhi to Shanghai, six cities. And we are going to take away all your money. You have no money. We are going to give you sacks full of vibrators. You are going to barter your way across China using these things. We have a social a Weibo correspondent and a video crew on you. So we are going to make a video out of this. And who are these two people? Regular people. Regular people. Regular human beings who signed up for this. Who signed up for this? And um, so you go. So they go to a restaurant and say, "Give us some food." And the, look at the menu. And this is whatever twenty RMB. And they say, "We don't have twenty RMB here." The vibrator. And you can see the face. <laughs> and then they want to uh, get onto an airplane. And again, they have to negotiate with the hotel at night. So every single thing, no money, only vibrators, right? And of course, they would get into trouble. So we had at that time four or five million fans on Weibo. So we said, we will always put a live presence of where you guys are, and you can tweet to ask for help. So there are these classic stories of these guys who were somewhere in some godforsaken place. They were like dead. No one was helping them. And then a bunch of people come who are Durex fans, and one of them drives up in a Ferrari. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. So at some point, somewhere along the journey, they lost a sack of vibrators. So it was just lying in the middle of a road. And the camera crew was hiding behind a bush. So this old woman, she comes, she looks at that bag, she picks it up, takes it out. What is this? There's no idea. Switches it on. <laughs> and then people get around and then the cops come. And then this thing was in national news. Really? So CCTV News, China, was covering this stunt, right? So once you've done things like this, the problem is that you have to do more because it's now in your base. And these are not media. It's not repeatable. Yeah. Right? So you have to build this culture. Something it's a very startup y thing to do, by the way. It's a very like because break as you go. Because we were uh, effectively like a startup. Yeah. And the learning in life from this one is this framework on innovation. Which is if you think about a consultant four box matrix, on one axis you put ambition, on the second axis you put resource. So if you have high ambition and low resource, you will find interesting new ways to disrupt and do things. Correct. If you have high ambition and high resource, you create an infrastructure and bureaucracy that gums things up. So what ended up happening for us in China was we built this culture, or the team built a culture, which was very much about we don't have any money, so we are going to try. And it became very much like what India does so well, right? Correct. A bit jugaad. Correct. But the key here is you have to have high ambition. Because if you have low ambition and low, if, if you have low resource, you can easily settle for low ambition. Correct. So. As a management team, you have to drive that ambition, ambition yeah. but you have to be super careful about not adding too much resource. Correct. Now, this may seem also not very nice because it will be that you're overworking people and all that, but it's not really, because if people are really enjoying what they do, they find, they're in flow, they find ways, they find shortcuts to do these kind of things, right? So anyway, this worked well for us. Eventually, we became quite famous for it. So we had, we were the most followed brand in China across social. We were more followed than BMW or Coke at times. There's a Harvard review, uh, business review, case study on Durex in China. But this actually, so to grow any business, you need to do two things. You need to build awareness and you need to build availability. Both of these things grow on an ESC, right? And if you grow one ESC faster than the other, you have a problem. Correct. Because if you spend too much on media, then your product is not available. It's a problem. People will distrust you. And on the other hand, if you have too much availability, but nobody knows about it, yeah. retailers will hit you. Kind of. So how you build these two together is critical. And what digital technologies enable us to do 
is to drive both these S curves at a much faster cadence. Normally, these S curves grow at an annual cadence. With digital, you can accelerate that to quarterly, monthly, even daily. Weekly, yeah. And that drives the S curve up faster. Correct. So, this try, learn, experiment, the far more experiments you can do, the faster that S curve goes up. So, in this world, what we ended up learning was that the racket model was dominate advertising. We learned we can't do that on TV, but we can certainly do that on social. And we did. And then it became how do you drive distribution? And we learned that as e-commerce came up, we were there with e-commerce in 2009. 2009, 2010, 2011 is when we started the e-commerce journey. So we ended up building a whole decade of e-commerce learnings in China and many learnings. And eventually those learnings were transplanted globally in the company to create what is called ERB, which is what Arjun runs today. Correct. And that ERB, that e-commerce business is accountable for a very significant part of the glo company's global growth over the last decade. I don't know the exact number, but somewhere between 60 and 80% of the growth of the global company that happened through ERB comes through e-commerce or ERB, right? And in China, that little business, that 15 million business is, again, while I can't give you exact numbers, I won't give exact numbers, it's in the range of a billion dollar business with, today with over 70% of that coming through e-commerce. So that compounding of knowledge over the years in e-commerce really helped. So when we started D2C in China, the, I remember the, I uh, used to get the reports, the first time, first months we started, we had a conversion rate of 0.15%. Today, on a regular D2C store for Durex in China, you would have a conversion rate between 11 and 14%. I'm going to you. So, just that conversion rate, 0 0.15 to 14% is, six, is an 80 times growth. Then you add the growth of traffic, multiply the, that with the growth of traffic, multiply that with the growth of basket size, and you have a business that is multiples of times bigger, right? Uh, because eventually, um, the way to get rich in China and everywhere in the world is first you find somebody else who wants to become rich. <laughs> then you tie yourself to that person saying that this is how we work together. So if you make money, I automatically make money. Correct. Now, if this is given, I can forget about me. Now, let's focus upon how you, I can make your business grow. Correct. 100% of my focus is your business. Correct. I trust you completely. I'm going to grow your business. And you, of course, will love it. And you will grow your business. Then the only step left is to find 100,000 people like you and do a deal with each of them. So this is the Alibaba model. You have 6 million Chinese people to be rich is glorious. All of them are trying to get rich on this marketplace. Alibaba provides all the tools. And every time they make a sale, Alibaba makes money. Wow. So you create automatic businesses that gain scale. But it is through the enterprise and the industry of all of these people with whom you have positive, beneficial, trusted relationships. And what is the reason why large companies or startups cannot do things like that? Well, it's crazy though, because in China, a lot of like companies have struggled to succeed in China in general. Tech companies for sure because of borders, but even consumer brands have not been able to scale the way record has scaled. I think was, do you think it was innovation of business models like no, you're saying? Or was it partnership or was it understanding? I think a lot of brands actually have scaled, right? So you think about companies like Apple, companies like Procter, companies to be respected, right? Unilever, all of these companies have done well in China. The pharma companies have also done well. So in general, I would say companies have scaled, but what's happened is that many of these companies scaled before the tech revolution happened in China. And China is a bit the world of the future because what 
I always want to be connected to China because what happens in China today happens in the rest of the world seven years later, technically, technologically. So the technical innovation in China will be the equivalent of cutting edge in the US three years from now. Oh, really? Absolutely. China out of the US that way, there's no comparison, in my opinion. Wow. So just take a simple thing, compare WhatsApp and WeChat. So people say WeChat is a copy of WhatsApp, maybe true right in the beginning. But WeChat has been having payments. Uh, I mean, WhatsApp got video calls, what, three years ago, right? Yeah. WeChat has been having video calls from month one. WeChat has payments. WeChat has integrations with everything. WeChat has short video since I don't know how many years. WeChat has location-based connections since I don't know how many years. WeChat has unlimited group sizes since at least 2015. Wow. Once you lived in an environment where you lived your life on WeChat, WhatsApp is a terrible disappointment. Wow. But, of course, there are other issues and other, other things we can also chat about. So, in a sense, China is always ahead from a technical point of view, from a technology adoption point of view. Uh, I mean, even, I, I remember last time I went to Alibaba was 2019, right? 2019, 11-11, I was in Alibaba. So, at that point, already, we were buying something in in a, in the Alibaba store, or in a store at Hangzhou. Already, the payment was uh, like the DG Aadhaar thing that I went through yesterday, where we picked that thing up, I looked at it, my payment was done, and I walked out. It works, huh? It worked. Dizzy Yatra. Dizzy Yatra worked yesterday. It worked brilliantly for me. Really? Yeah. I've not had that experience yet, but I've heard about it from people. Yeah, it worked. But China was there for business. So, Dizzy Yatra has not been there because of other issues, but from a payments point of view, this QR code revolution that you have in India, China people have been using Alipay and WeChat Pay with QR codes for the last decade. Wow. So, Paytm is invested by our friend in China, right? Correct. A lot of the things that you see in Paytm are what would have already been in China a decade before Paytm started. So, so it's a different uh, ball game there, right? So, coming back to the question you asked about these companies, so a lot of these companies build big brands, but because there are such fast ways of technical change that come in China and also will come in India, and we should talk about India and China in a minute. What ends up happening is what made you successful then is not going to make you successful now. So you end up with a brand that has been built based on TV media in China and now suddenly no one is watching TV. So what do you do? What do you do? And somebody will come up and disrupt you. So the, the faster availability and uh, awareness can change and that also goes up in a sense with Moore's law with your technology thing. Correct. The faster your existing business model can be disrupted. The same rules work for other competitors also, right? Yes. And always the, you know, you always want to be the big fish. But remember, the big fish is being eaten by a million small fish all the time. So when you become the big fish, it's really painful because everyone is eating you up. Correct. Correct. So it looks attractive from far away. Oh, look at the great big fish. But imagine how much pain that big fish is in. Correct. <laughs> Could you, like as an entrepreneur. You become very comfortable with worst case scenarios. Ki I'll be on the street, I'll have no money, yeah. and I would have lost money for my investors, and so hence I'm zero reputation. Yeah. What happens when that happens? And the one thing that gives solace is at least I'm healthy. I'm mentally healthy, I'm physically healthy, I have 10 fingers, 10 toes, and a body that I can count on. Yeah. And that gives me a lot of peace. Yeah. So I don't ever want to lose that. Yeah. I don't ever want to lose health yeah. here. 
mental and physical work ki or what will i do without my mind or what will i do without yes body so taking care of it through nutrition and exercise both has become a very nutrition important. being 80% like exercise 20 correct but i think cardiovascular strength hmm. is very important and overall physical strength that just has to happen to lets meant lets absolute resistance but let's come back to our earlier topic around uh, around and you worked so deeply in 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 categories that are in homes and close to the consumer in china and india and i know you you're a student of these two countries uh, in a way but make the comparison like a lot of people speak about these two countries in the same breath especially now right so like manufacturing wants to move to india and you know we're saying we are we will we'll be i think our population is just overtaken theirs but yeah. demographic is not younger today chai chirab was saying that 1 billion over 1.4 billion people is under 30 that china is kind of a lot older so so yeah this is something that i've thought a lot about and let me tell you some numbers which you may know you I, you may not know actually so let's set the frame first so the frame is that in life compounding is uh, so you know remember the archimedes thing give me a lever and i will move the world correct but actually that should be not be that it should be give me the power of compounding and patience and i will change everything okay right so you know this simple thing that if you have a 1% growth every day 1.01 raised to the power 365 is 37.8 correct so the impact of small steps done repeatedly frequently frequently without withdrawing from the bank okay. is tremendous and you don't see this in the beginning you see this in the end and therefore life always becomes an s curve we humans think that we are responsible for driving that s curve up or down but actually it's a myth okay if you keep as humans what you are the only thing that you should worry about is constancy of purpose and strategy so you don't disturb the compounding if you disturb the compounding you're screwed because you start again at zero so one to raise to the power 365 is 37.8 but if you do one raise to the power 100 days and then leave it and then do 100 days again it will be something like i don't know what but maybe Four. maybe 15 yeah it'll still be good yeah but it'll be less than it'll be disproportionately back to the design there for the days right so when you think about things for the long term forget about whether you are a smart manager or not it doesn't it matters a little bit because that if you do that 1.01 instead of 1.01 0.2 it, 1.02 it can be better okay but even 1.01 is good enough actually so now apply that idea to china and india china liberalized in 1976 India liberalized in 1991 that's a difference of 15 years so now let's look at the difference between the two countries from a 15 year lens now i'm in a great place to see this because we are sitting in talking in india in 2023 and i first went to china 15 years ago in 2008 and i happen to know the numbers so china the economy in 2008 was 4.5 trillion dollars wow india's economy today is 3.5 trillion dollars correct right so both india and china came from a very similar place china in 1976 india in 1991 the advantage china always has is the constancy of political drive and people think that china is um a bit 
different and it is but the way chinese people see the government in china many i won't say all there's no absolute but a lot of chinese people the way they see the government in china is they see the leadership of china like the head of the family who's you are around a dinner table family dinner table the head of the family is taking tough decisions for you you don't like the decision but you know it's for the family you know it's for the good of the family so it's not that you want to, yes you may be young and rebellious but you're not going to be rioting in the streets about it there'll be that respect for that the head of the family and that and china has been a unitary country for over 2000 years it's always been ruled from a center with a strong bureaucracy and a strong center one point of this unlike india which has always been fragmented more heterogeneous more much more heterogeneous right and also politically fragmented decision making has been very different in india and india is much more federal china is also federal but not so much so more economically federal rather than culturally federal so and in india you've had for good or worse a democracy which is finds it difficult to take the tough decisions so i think why china was a, is 33% higher than india is 15 years down the journey comes down to some of these factors that india could not take the tough decisions that china could take early okay now fast forward till 2023 that 4.5 billion trillion chinese economy by the by the time by the way that time the us economy was 14.5 trillion correct today china is 17 and a half 18 trillion the us is 24 trillion correct now think about what's going to happen to india 3.5 trillion if it underperforms china at a similar level will still become 14 trillion correct in the next 15 years so in the next 15 years india is going to grow 5x just based on base growth copying what's happened in china now people say china is very advanced they've got such great infrastructure they're cleaning up the environment yes but you're looking at india 15 years down the line yeah. india would be like that you think so for india to be like that a number of things have to happen the first is regardless of which party i'm not a party person at all you need to have political stability by political i don't mean there has to be one party rule what i mean is that you have to have to have constancy in decision making regardless of whoever is in power correct the legislative and executive have to yeah you're right you're absolutely right i think in the last 8 years like it or not but the positive is that we've had great consistency and focus on the key enabling drivers like infrastructure education investment a higher proportion of investment actually hitting the ground correct there's always leakage but i would say a higher proportion right so if you are able to replicate that for the next double that time i believe it would be well on track so that's the first factor the second factor is the youth now this is something that i've heard you talk in your podcast and you're passionate about and it's very true india's median age today is 27 china's median age is 38 correct and the us median age today is 48 and the uk is 50 wow fit when i was in china in 2008 the median age was 29 at that time and i used to compare with japan which was 37 at that time 38 and when you have a country that has a median age of 27 and has infrastructure starting to grow 
you have this sense of immense youth, energy, positivity, and these people want to do things in a different way from their ancestors. And it's a classic situation of high ambition. These people, as they say in Hindi, because they've seen benchmarks of success. They've seen people like you who've created something. And they know that, like there was an American dream and there's a Chinese dream, today there's an Indian dream. And anybody can dream that Indian dream. And how do you dream that Indian dream? One way is to create something of true value <laughs> by becoming an entrepreneur. There are other ways also. So I think you'll see so much more of that. And if you have, um, you know, 1.4 billion Indians who realize that they can get rich if they work hard and if they do things right, it creates magic, it creates so much output, and it grows in unpredictable, unexpected, unforeseeable ways yeah. in which value gets created. So I think that, but for that to happen, we have to make sure we don't waste this generation. We don't waste the demographic dividend that this country has. Because you only get it once in forever, this demographic dividend, right? And to make sure we don't so waste it, we have to create opportunities that can absorb this massive scale of millions and hundreds of millions of people into these jobs which actually can create an impact elsewhere. Because this country does not have the purchasing power to buy the output of 700 million hard-striving Indians. Yeah, we have to sell to the world. So we have to sell to the world. Which is what China did. China had two things. One, it had the same demographic dividend. The second thing that was happening was there were lots of people moving from urban China to, from rural China to urban China. Correct. And agriculture was getting more and more mechanized, which it will get here also. Here, maybe less because of the small land workers. But, so, China... I remember then a presentation from McKinsey, actually, <laughs> which said that 16 million jobs a year need to be created every year for China to keep pace with the rural urban migration. India, it may not be 16, it may be 13, 12, 12, 13, something like that. So what ended up happening was, in China, the government prizes stability above all else because it knows that stability is the number one factor that drives long-term growth for the whole community. And in that sense, it's a very benign government for China. So to get that stability, it has to make sure there is no civil unrest. The side effect, of course, is that the party remains strong. So to do that, how do you do that? When you have all these, this energy, the only way to do that is by helping these people get rich and giving them that dream. The only way you can do that is by giving them jobs. The only way you can give them jobs is if you create enough output. So if you live in a Western country today and you're this beneficiary of this super cycle of low prices of commodities, I mean, we live in a world where it's incredible. You can buy a flat screen TV, which has all of this shit inside <laughs> for $200. Correct. And you spend $250 for a handmade bag, <laughs> which doesn't even have a zip. <laughs> and you feel the bag is expensive, is cheap, and the TV is expensive. Correct. Why did that happen? It happened because China had to produce in such large volumes because their route was manufacturing. Correct. 
that they had to keep prices low for the rest of the world because otherwise the rest of the world could not consume and could not buy and a lot of the Chinese investment actually went indirectly, directly into some kind of subsidization, some kind of automation, <coughs> some kind of whatever to keep prices low for the world. And you can see the impact that has had on the whole world because the whole world today consumes, consumes so much from China. So we say that production is moving from China and it is true. It is true that there's a big strategic rift and all kinds of issues are happening. However, let me tell you a fact. Something like 65 to 70, I don't remember the exact number, I can give it to you. 65 to 70% of the total capital expenditure of the world last year was in China. What are you saying? I'm telling you. Apple produces in India, but do you know what percentage of Apple production, iPhones are produced in China? 95. So yes, you will diversify. But for you to diversify from 95 to 30, which is what the fair share should be, is going to take you a long time. Because what China has done very well is it's now gone out of the low-level manufacturing. It's happy for all this shit to go out because these are polluting industries. Yeah. China is now on the bandwagon of having lifted everything, so it's getting more and more high-tech, which is why the chip issue is a bigger issue in China. And China is focused on technologies which are on the seven big trends that I think are the biggest trends. First one, number one environment. In my opinion, a huge number of unicorns are going to be maintained on the environment. Again, I don't remember the exact numbers top of my head, but last year perhaps there's one US unicorn which is on the environment, but I think there are close to 10 or 12 in China on climate and environment. On climate environment. Think about technologies like AI, tokenization, all these kinds of things. You will find dramatic moves by China so China is happy to get rid of the low value added because now the people who were young are now middle-aged and they are well-to-do. Correct. But now you need to make them rich. To make them rich, you cannot make that happen until you drive productivity. Correct. So China is focused now on the productivity game. China is into automation. China is into driving the robotics. China, today for companies, it's difficult in China because the government average wage increases in China is way ahead of inflation. 7-8% is the regular inflation that the China government will give on minimum wage. So it's about uplifting a whole civilization. Correct. Now in the case of India, what are the capabilities and industries that we can create at such a scale that it can impact the consumption of the whole world and make us a 50% supplier or 60% market share supplier from Argentina to Alaska okay. over the next decade. We have to find that and if we find that then we will replicate what China has done because that's what China did. China went from being nothing to accounting for 40% or some such of global trade. Mm. The number one trading partner of, the China, of China is Africa yeah. collectively. Right. You go to, you know, I used to have a global role. Every hotel room I went to, whether it was in Argentina or Cape Town, anywhere, the odds are you open <coughs> the elevator and you meet somebody speaking Chinese. Really? Yeah. We took over the entire IT outsourcing industry globally. Yeah. Fundamentally because we were able to match costs of China and we were English speaking both. So that's why the TS, TCSs and processes of the world could do that, but China could not do as well as we could. 
China did that in manufacturing, maybe 100x for. But we need to create, find that that opportunity. Do you think manufacturing is the opportunity for us? Can we sell to the world? I think we have a big opportunity in manufacturing because our base is so low. But the problem with doing this in manufacturing is that uh, India as a country is very vulnerable to climate change. Okay. So we are one of the most at-risk places. And if you look at the projections in India, as it is 52 degrees, summers are going to become normal. The changes in crop cycles can result in real food poverty in India. So we have to be, I think, extraordinarily careful about the environmental impact of what we do. China did the industrial revolution. So the thing about industrial revolution is they create smoke. Correct. They created smoke in London when the industrial revolution happened. Now the Brits have had a hundred years to clean that stuff up. So now it looks all green and nice. Correct. So China in most places now looks green and nice. Correct. Number of foggy days in Beijing are now very low. They're not like when I used to go there. Correct. So India has to make money and yes, it will make money through production. But the more production you have, the more your environment gets hit. And at a time when the environment is a very sensitive thing and we're already on the cusp of. And the like more it. your energy intensity goes up the more you impact the whole world. If 1.4 billion people start consuming like the Americans, the earth is finished, right? Yeah. So, I think, yes, manufacturing, of course we will have to grow, but I think it's very dangerous if that's our main plank. I think what's special about India so true. Is, is the intellectual capital, is the ability to, is the jugad in a sense, is the drive, is the youth, it's the imagination. So how we can integrate all of, and digital transformation of India, which, which is why, I, you know, when I come back to India, I feel so good about seeing the digital transformation that we have. UPI here. and so on. UPI. You know, anybody has digital payments. It's fantastic. It's just, it's just amazing. More and more you'll have this Digi Yatra. Everybody will be on it. No Indian will have to queue up anymore and go through all of the bureaucratic shit that we had to go Correct. through. Correct. All these things are so positive. But why can, and uh, you know, we can already start seeing some of these things starting to get exported. But these are just a, a base, uh, let's call it infrastructure layer. On top of this, there's going to be an innovation layer. On top of that, there's going to be a business model layer. On top of that, there's going to be a regulatory layer. All of those layers will create all of these interesting new ideas, new businesses, which there is no reason. Uh, you know, when I talk to a lot of VCs or a lot of people in India, people are like, oh, we have such a big opportunity in India. So I'm going to focus all my effort on India. But I don't find enough people here who say we have everything we need to conquer India, sure, but to conquer the world. Like a lot. Yeah. I was in the US the other day, um, uh, last month, January. And uh, so many people my age who went there 10, 12 years back for their master's, PhD, whatever, stayed back, got jobs. Now, of course, there's a whole visa issue and all of that through COVID and the government. But for a lot of them, they're they're realizing the thing with the American dream was great standard of living, great income, ability to build out wealth. They're seeing the opportunity cost of doing that in the U.S. versus India is is way too high. So they want to come back to it. independent, right? They could be business folks, they could be uh, management consultants, they could be bankers, they could be techies. Everything. Mm -hmm. Look, look I, from for me, I think in India, if you have enough money your life can be very um, luxurious. But it is luxurious within islands. So you do island hopping from one island to the other. Correct. <laughs> in air-conditioned <laughs> transits. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs>
correct. <laughs> Whereas if you think about where where I live in London, for example, they've they had the industrial revolution long enough ago that they've had enough time to clean it up. Correct. So you live in an environment which is actually not as luxurious. Your quality of housing may be better. All that may be good. But you do a lot of stuff for yourself, which you would never do in India. You work harder, in a sense, at stuff at home than you do in India, ever. If you're in the same, let's call it, economic class. But on the flip side, the connection that you have with the outdoors is much deeper than you have in India. Because in India, what, you, what I feel I lose when I come back is this connection with my environment. So when I come to Gurgaon, I cannot... So in London, I walk between 12 and 17,000 steps a day, not just because I want to walk the steps, but because I just like to ramble around thinking and taking pictures. Here, I cannot ramble around thinking and taking pictures because somebody will knock me off the road. Yeah. And the infrastructure is not there. Now, I see encouraging signs. Today, if you drive in Gurgaon, you can see that the dividers actually have green stuff that's growing. The trees that were planted are actually now big enough. And you can see that 10 years later, it'll be kind of okay. Correct. So I think that's one trade-off. And it's not because life is eventually about happiness and satisfaction. And economic growth is one part of it. So India is still young enough and hungry enough that it has not, many people have not learned that life is about balance. And at this point, also when I was that age, I was also all about grow, 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 grow at all cost. But at some point, the cost is too high. So if the question is, would I come back to India? The answer is, at this point of time, I don't see myself coming back predominantly to India to live just because of a personal reason, which is I'm very happy and well settled where I am. I'm very happy to travel to India. I see myself very Indian in that way. But I don't want to come back and hustle in this environment like I used to. 30 years ago. Which may be a very bad thing to say given that I'm thinking of a new venture. We <laughs> <laughs> might change because I, I know I agree with you, man. I, like I, we've also had you know, grown up kids. Like you, yeah. there, there is a certain anchoring which you have done for. Correct. Yeah, mother's hard Once your kids are, have grown up outside India throughout their life, it's very difficult for them to come in at an entry level in India. Correct. So my view is I think I, you will probably build a global company and given the kind of stature and kind of business you're building yeah. my strong belief is once your children are kind of in college and independent and so on like once they once they leave the home and they fly away um my view is you and Seema might operate in a three four country two don't two country kind of thing yeah. six months here or three months here yeah so a lot i'll certainly spend a lot more time in india but this will not be my only home that being said, I've been here for this time for almost a month. And for me, it's really easy to emotionally come back and be at home here. Yeah. If you, I can see that. I can see that. I think just, I think you've been, you've been rooted in India for too long and then China for seven, eight years. I speak to Vinod Nambiar, who we spoke yeah. about. Colgate. Right? Right? Yeah, from Colgate, now with more. And he so, always said that expats from India have helped build global consumer product businesses. True. At Reckett, Colgate, HUL, etc. That's like last 30, 40 years. Expats have built it out, but have always remained Indian. And he used to give a very interesting. He said, and it's true. He said, meet any expat from India who spent any number of decades outside. 
their accent will completely be indian none of them have americanized the way techies for example who spent time in california etc or, or canada would have their accent would have changed i would normally agree with that but the only caveat i would say is you should test this hypothesis by meeting them in their country in their office then <laughs> that is true. so for example bukul bukul devras i don't know whether you know him he is as she's at it's uh, for many years colgate for many years asia president was global cmo of colgate hmm. speaks like he's straight from nagpur we have seen him in their office also yeah. think very much the same we know this very much the same arjun for example you yeah. are very much. so anyone who i meet that that that's so true because then it it kind of roots you to to the country in a way but tell me about about mo- moving out of china going back to racket and the transition from being like president and global ceo and all of that and like sometimes when i go to these your offices and i see like corner offices for people like yourself or for mukul or so on i i get very personally overwhelmed because it's a 35 40 year career that has led to a senior position where each decision affects thousands and tens of thousands of people and you know you have stock market analysts questioning it and it's a lot of responsibility but talk about getting to that level which is the epitome of a lot of indians are now doing that in global companies which is amazing but then saying hey hold on now i want to have done this and now i want to start my own venture so talk about that also uh, perhaps my insights on that are not as well formed as other insights and one of the reasons for that is that that part of my career was a bit of a rush because it got accelerated by digital technology in a sense and it happened very fast because i moved from being gm of china in 20 so let me tell you the chronology 20 uh, i moved to china in the 9 2009 yeah 2008 2009 i was already gm china correct 2012 i became svp for north asia 2015 i became um, global category head for healthcare which is our, at that time our most um, focused category and also where we looked at look to do all the acquisitions and that's when you moved back to london and that's when i moved to london okay yeah. how big was china when you moved out when <laughs> i moved out of china it was about um, 350 million uh, as part of my role there the a key part was to identify acquisition target do you think when you in 2015 were you now ahead of all your peers who were ahead of you to, to, to 2015 i was probably your caught up at par maybe slightly actually i'd uh, probably moved ahead when i became svp north asia so okay. gm i was caught up and then i okay and eventually i mean i worked for a lot of those guys and many of those people are actually smarter than me and i would all work for them again in a startup by the way right so the fantastic people but some sure. of them also ended up working for me so we worked for each other over the years correct and that's that was all cool so uh 2015 was uh, when i was doing healthcare we also that was part of that was evaluating most of our acquisition opportunities so as part of that we found this company called meet johnson which was a huge acquisition in hindsight good bad we can have a separate discussion we spent a lot of money effectively 17 billion dollars buying a company that was an nse listed uh, insane uh, yeah so that was listed on the on in the new york stock exchange and that was the largest ever fmcg acquisition in history right from like that no it was the largest ever outbound acquisition from the uk for a us company okay have there been acquisitions bigger than that ever i, I can't i got 18 billion dollars yeah, there have been bigger acquisitions yeah. gillette would be at would have been a big acquisition of design billion right yeah. so there's a big So it's not the biggest acquisition but for us it was big yeah. remember again it's not a huge company correct so after we bought that company i ran that uh, we uh, the management team changed and i became like the ceo equivalent of that company so i ran that for almost a year 
globally. Uh, no, sorry, before that, I had moved to America to be the American president okay. in February after doing a lot of work on this acquisition, but it was stalled. Then the acquisition progressed and actually happened. So three weeks later, I moved back to London <laughs> to lead this new company. So you were in the US only for three, four weeks? Four weeks, I was the president of America. For, <laughs> not for America, but for Naked in America. Huh. Uh, short stint, <laughs> but also interesting learning. Correct. Anyway, so then I ran uh, Meet Johnson for a while, and then we decided to integrate it with the rest of the business. So when that happened, we the company um, became two divisions, health and hygiene. Health was about 8 billion, hygiene was about 5 billion. And I started running, developing markets for health, which was about half the company with direct responsibility for China, and also ERB. That's where ERB got effectively... So 2015 also I was doing something there, but 2017 is where that happened. So I did that for a year or so. Then I became chief operating officer of the company. That was for a year and a half. Then we had a new CEO when I was chief operating officer, just same time. Yeah. And after that, it became three divisions. So health, hygiene and nutrition. So I was president of the nutrition division, but also continued to be president of China for all of the divisions because I had all the relationships in China. Correct. And also continued to do ERB for all the three divisions. Wow. Right. So I did that. Uh, so around this time, while I was making that transition and I was still running health, COVID happened. So COVID actually started in China, in Wuhan. Correct. Uh, Dettol by now had become China's number one disinfectant brand. And the factory was in Wuhan. Wuhan. The place which is equidistant from everywhere. Oh, same factory or something? Same factory, which had become now a Dettol factory. Are you serious? Yeah. So it's a small city, a little distance from Wuhan, but our factory manager was stuck in Wuhan. So from November the previous year, before anyone knew about COVID, we were basically doing, my team and I, we were doing um, daily crisis calls. So, because the scale was different then, the last... Did you realize when that those calls were happening? I remember November, December of 2019, seeing small articles in the paper about something happening in China. Did you realize at that time that this is going to be a global pandemic which is going to change the face of the I realized years? that in February, January, February, and I had a couple of hundred. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that story also. We we actually stopped all our global travel in February after we did a business review on the way back. The HR person and I, we chatted to each other and said this is too dangerous. We stopped all travel across the world without approval across the company that day. And I remember in February going to the US, early February, and doing a town hall. And there we had a brand called Lysol and saying, there's this pandemic in China. You guys don't realize it. It's going to destroy it's going to really come here. It's going to, you guys are not prepared. And the general thing was that, oh, those Chinese are incompetent. We have our FDA, we can, you know, do our, it's not going to impact us. They are mismanaging it, right? But uh, remember at the time when this started, the benchmark was the previous, pan- the racial memory was the previous pandemic, which was called SARS. SARS, yeah. SARS is where Dettol first grew in China. But remember, people don't get this. 4,500 was the total number of infections in SARS at its peak. 4,500. In China? In the world. In the world. Which basically means in China at that time, because it never got beyond. This thing was hitting 40,000 infections cumulatively in China reported in three months. And while in the context of a million deaths in some markets eventually, like the US, 
40,000 infections seems like nothing. For us at that time, it was 10x the worst awesome. case scenario ever. So China had already locked down. And this was the time where companies like us and many other companies also discovered that through this long period of globalization, mm. we had built supply chains which were extremely global in nature. So sure. for a bottle of a product like that, hypothetically, you would get the bottle from a PET supplier who may be in a city in China, who may get the raw material from Malaysia. You put the cap and the fastener from something that comes from Germany and the ink on the label may have come from Korea. And to put this thing together, you needed all of these things to work, but all your ports were closed. You had no oil, you had no uh, ethanol, methanol, so you, you need to put in alcohol, you had none of that. Because everything was closed. So for the first 60 days, we learned how to take a global supply chain and make it local. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we did crazy things. We figured out that you can actually hire a train full of alcohol and take it through the Trans-Siberian Railway through Russia into China. You learned that you could have tankers that could drive up through the mountains of Vietnam into South China. You learned that you could float barges and then power them up the Yangtze to Wuhan to make that all. To make that all. You learned that when everything was out of stock completely because the volume exploded 20x that the only way to get alcohol was to get the local government, which was very focused on... So China local government, it's interesting, their KPIs normally are on GDP growth. The mayor's KPI of a city is GDP growth, gross happiness growth of a city, and they're looking for to create cities where people can work, live, and play. Mm. And they have KPIs for each of this, and that's what gets them promoted. Okay. Right, so... <laughs> work, live, and play, okay. Yeah. So the mayors were working with us to get alcohol producing factories to shut down producing alcohol and put all the reserves into producing that all. So we actually built a playbook of how to manage this local supply chain, which actually you can look at the results later of how the company managed market share, let's say, in a post-pandemic situation. It was basically a supply game and actually potentially did better than many others uh, just in terms of being able to scale up um, hand sanitizer, we scaled it up 50x Crazy. in a year. In a place where everything was disrupted. Right? So that was a very intense period as I was doing that and then starting to hand it over as I moved into this nutrition role. So I did the nutrition role for about a year, a year and a half. And th at this point, actually what happened was I was turning 50. I had been quite clear for a long time that I had a great stint. I loved the company. I, I still have great feeling for the company. No complaints about management, about anybody. But what I felt was that uh, I've built so many startups within the company and I always wanted to build one for myself. So that's one unfinished task I had. The second thing was I wanted to spend more time with my family because that's really important. And my son had another two years to go before he went to college. So I've been blessed to be able to spend that time with him and also my wife Seema, who's actually spent so much, sacrificed so much, right? She was a banker, she gave up her career. Well, did you guys meet at Iron Calvin? Uh, no, actually we have this classic arranged marriage. Oh, very cool, it's so cute. Very cute. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so so she well, used to be with Amex and then my ICICI bank. So she stopped that because we were kind of on this world of darshan. <laughs> 
so uh, spending more time with her getting some stuff done at home um getting some things cleaned up my dad had passed away a few years ago there was things pending and uh, st- also i was conscious that even though i i thought that i was outward looking for a corporate uh, person i used to spend uh, a lot of my time i managed to try always automated my job and spend a lot of my time looking at different things and new things which i did till the end but i realized that the world was moving so fast that i had i was missing out on learning some of these very interesting trends i had not really understood the real implications of climate even though of course the company had a lot of a in, lot invested in it but it was not visible uh things like ai tokenization these are the this is now like what e-commerce was when i started in 2009 so i wanted to be early on that game and also i wanted to take care of my health so i also went back and learned a lot about how to do that right so essentially i spent a year doing all of that i built myself after i left the company was it hard to leave not really actually so first of all 1000 days is a long time yeah I, i mean in in my case i i was not eligible to retire of course right <laughs> i was too young for that or oh, really like in in, in in what like like 65 is the retirement age right for yeah. reckoning the contract in my contract so if you and then and if you retire at reckoning then is there something else that comes your way like is it is it more lucrative to retire versus no actually it is terrible to retire because uh, normally i i always had this dream that a company should fire me that would be great because a company typically <laughs> fires you so somehow <laughs> that never happened <laughs> so retirement is a proxy for saying that it's my decision i would like to leave the company would like me to stay and therefore i'm not expecting the company to buy me out or waste my shares or so if my shares lapse they lapse so retirement means that i'm happy to give up my golden handcuffs yeah and leave the gold in them behind oh god and retire but that's totally okay mm-hmm. i don't think it's an oh god moment <laughs> and the reason for that is that life i think is about happiness and a lot of people who go out of india remain very indian in some ways in some good ways and i think i'm very indian in some ways i'm not so different from the young kid who started on this this company i don't my needs are not very different even if i could afford a private jet i would not want to fly in a private jet even today morning i happily took an auto from my house to go to the train station it's totally okay for me so i can certainly afford to have a very nice car in gurgaon parked 24 hours around the clock correct but i would actually prefer to take the auto because i get to have a chat with somebody who's an auto driver and see what that person is thinking so when you boil your life down to what is really important and if you think of this formula for happiness in a sense happiness is achievement minus expectation the thing that people forget is that or what people try for is achievement a lot of us in india and my generation for sure who a lot of surprising number of us come from service class background our parents were in the army my my dad was in the army or in various other places where you get great education fantastic value systems but there is never enough money so you're always this you know ambitious overachiever insecure overachiever correct you also feel a little bit of an imposter syndrome because you've you always the outsider you've been in nine schools in 10 years there's always you feel there's something fake about you you suddenly land up at this multinational and now you are basically 
telling somebody in Brazil how to run their business, right? But you never worked in Brazil before. So there is a bit of an imposter syndrome that you have, right? So in a sense, you're always slightly insecure. And solve that insecurity you're driving for overachievement. So many of us in my generation certainly are insecure overachievers. Now, what happens in life is at some point you'll lose that insecurity. Then the question is, what, what, why do you lose the insecurity? Because eventually you get a bit maybe wiser or a bit think, not necessarily wiser, you think different. Where happiness, like I said, is achievement minus expectation. I can keep my expectation pretty low. Yeah. I can come back and live in India on, you know, whatever number of lakhs a year, not even crores. And from that perspective, of course, I have enough money to do that till the end of my days with no problem, right? Correct. I can maintain my current lifestyle without significant issues. So that being the case, I don't need more achievement to drive my happiness. I'm happy. Correct. So from that point of view, I was happy to leave Racket because I gave up let's say a significant amount of money in doing so. But on the flip side, what I got was complete freedom to do whatever I wanted. And eventually I left the company, but eventually what is the company? Company is people. I'm still very deeply connected to a lot of people in Racket. Yeah. And uh, again, if anyone in the company ever would need anything or need anything, I'm always happy to help. And I don't really expect anything for any of this, right? I remember the Racket team was here. And I could see them, their faces when you walked into the room. They lit up and it's amazing to see the kind of goodwill in general. But that's what 27 years of global performance and investment in people the way you would have done leads to, which makes it harder. I don't think the financial aspect is as difficult as the emotional aspect of leaving home. Yeah. You went on 23. But I, I think in life you want to always run towards something. You never want to run away from something. So now the question becomes what are you running towards? Yes, correct. When Arjun, I, I don't know, I don't think you told me they're going to be an entrepreneur. Arjun first told me hmm. that you're going to be an entrepreneur. And me being my narcissistic self felt, I think I have inspired, <laughs> I have reverse inspired. Andy. I told Arjun, is it because he saw Bombay Shave company? I said, we should, he's like, no man, you should ask him. But that's definitely not the reason. I said, Are, yaar, at least let me believe for a while that that would have been the, would have been the inspiration. But sorry, go ahead. So, uh, on a more funny note. No, I've actually, uh, you know, for many years, uh, I've walked all. I've often walked into my boss's office in Racket and said, "I'm leaving because I want to become an entrepreneur." And this has happened to with the CEO, but it's also happened with like EVPs I used to report to, and they're like, "No, no you shouldn't leave." And I'm like, "You can't pay me enough." <laughs> and they're like, "What do you mean?" So I'm like, "What will you pay me? Maximum you will pay me your salary." Right? <laughs> now, but actually, when you do the math, and if you assume a five x multiple, the number the revenue of a startup that I need to create even with a 50% equity stake to match a CEO's salary is actually quite ridiculously small. Correct. Right? Because wealth is basically created by people who create ownership and wealth rather than by people who work. Yeah. Capital was income. It's very, very good. Yeah, it's capital versus income. So, so in a sense, I've always known that I'm going to do a startup. And I've done so many startups for Naked, right? And the value, market value of many of those, I would say is several double-digit billions correct, of dollars. But, see, intel intellectually, it is not different from any of my frameworks on how to think about it. So I know that everything goes on an S-curve. 
you can try to experiment faster to make your S-curve go up faster. So I'm, that's what I'm trying to do, contract, to contract your S-curve, right? Now, whatever you do, your past does not impact that S-curve. So you may be God's gift to mankind. But if you're doing something new, so even for my startup, I'm looking to do a test in India, but potentially in the UK and potentially in the US in a small basis. Why do I want to com complicate my life? Everyone I speak to says you're crazy. Yeah. You shouldn't do this. It's because I've done this before. I know that if I start in India, the learnings will be different from the learnings in the UK. Okay. So I cannot go two years on my S-curve startup in the UK and expect to translate that and be two years up in India. I'll still be at zero in India. Correct. So the most important part of entrepreneurship is the first three or four years of hard grind when it looks like nothing is happening. It's a disaster. It's terrible. Mm. Nobody believes in your idea. Right. It's, nobody can understand it also. It's like crazy. <laughs> right? so, but that is the time when if you hold it right and you stay compounding and you stay disciplined and you create the infrastructure like what India wants to do, you can then ride that S-curve. And people only celebrate that S-curve. But actually what you need to celebrate is the effort at the beginning. Because even if you get it wrong, you can repurpose. It's like a chef. You can cut it up and put it into the next okay. dish. That's correct. So I've been very focused on that. So that's what the second thing is um, from a situation where thousands, tens of thousands of people are in my teams. And you, the only way you can influence is through influence rather than work yourself. I took a conscious choice after I left the company to become a very normal human being. What that means is in the in London, I travel everywhere by train. Right. I walk and I take the train. I take my car out only if I have no choice. I do not um, do anything which are the trappings of high society. I try and spend as much time with normal people as I possibly can. Even in terms about of building the organization, I don't want to go and hire people and get in people, even co-founders at this stage, until I feel that the thing is solid enough that it will survive. Because the last thing I want to do is get people on and then be accountable to them for it not working. So I've learned a different model of working with people, which is the start uh, startup way, which is I have one full-time employee whose job is to make everybody else run on time, and she's very good at it. And then I have other people who are all technically very good, but they all spend a certain number of hours, as much as needed actually, and they have other things that they do. So it's not the only gig that they do. Okay. But net-net, I've learned, I've seen that these people can actually deliver as much and more than a full-time person could do. So that's a very different way of thinking about it. And then uh, I've built a design team, which has been dedicated on building my thing and uh, also a tech team. But those at this stage are still outsourced. So given that I decided to bootstrap this with my own money and not raise anything from either any angel, uh, which I need to vet very carefully at some stage, who, if any angels I need, and uh, also not from any VC so far, uh, because I'm just, I, I think it can work. It's all about the execution, and I'm quite happy to lose my a certain amount of my money. How much have you put put aside for this? Like, it was like, yeah, I won't lose this much before I start raising external capital or before revenue starts funding the business. I would lose a million dollars. That that that's sizable. That's that's a good seed amount or a good pre-series A for any company. So I'm happy to lose a million dollars to start with and then we can take it from there depending on how things are. <laughs>
Amazing, amazing. But are you, are, do you feel you wake up a lot more energized or it's the same? Like in terms of your lifestyle, etc., it's kind of the same in terms of... Except, I don't know, my first two, three years running Bombay Shaving Company or like pre-launch and so on, I would be like shivering with excitement, like a lot, very, lot of nervous energy. Maybe it was an age thing. I was 27, 20 when I started. So very different. But like, is it different from like walking into a record board meeting, for example, or... Well, when you've done that for so long, walking into a board meeting is relatively easy, right? Because you know what yeah. buttons to push and it's routine. So, I w I'm also conscious that one of the things I don't want to do is, in Reckitt, I was not, you know, your thing about you should work hard when you're young. I followed that. I used to work like you said, actually. And I also used to work smart. It's not that I was working like an idiot, but I also used to work very hard. But that meant that at that stage of my life, I was able to build a lot more of, into my experience curve, which okay. then grew fast, right? The S-curve was contracted. Correct. That's how you contract the S-curve, by doing more experiments. How do you do more experiments? By doing more stuff. Fact. Throwing more stuff at the wall. Correct. But I'm now at a stage in life where I'm also conscious that I want to balance my life a bit more. So what this means is that there is an, a portion of my life which is um, at least... So first of all, I do not work more than a four-day week. Okay. Second, in any week, I do not work, in, in any day, I do not work more than four hours on my project. You so the rest of the time you are mentally switched on, you are thinking? I'm mentally switched on 100% of the time because what's happening is that I feel that innovation comes when you take diverse views you always got your problem in your head and then you see something, oh, some, oh there are wings. Can I apply, for, attach those wings to my idea? Oh, now it's created something new, right? Oh, there's a light. Can I brighten my idea somehow, right? So, you keep your idea at the center of your focus all the time or somewhere in your focus and you're now talking with a taxi guy and you're thinking, of something he said and how that relates to your idea. And if you can relate a hundred different things, a hundred different ways to your idea in a day, you will come up with interesting insights. And you do not really need more than a couple of us to operationalize them, provided you have an efficient communication and a good team yeah. who does whatever they need to do. Because you don't want to micromanage them, right? <laughs> you, you don't want to have a meeting every day just because it's a fashion to have a meeting. Yeah. So, I <laughs> completely. Because meetings are, remember there's another framework, which is the framework of work. Work, if you remember your physics, <laughs> I do, is force into displacement. Force into displacement. Correct. Force is very easy to measure Correct. and force is flapping around half the time. The question Correct. is, how much did it move? Correct. How much did you move your project today? If you moved it a little bit, you've done work. Correct. If you had meetings all day and it's not moved at all, work is zero, force is a lot. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's amazing. Um, before we conclude the conversation, um, our viewers are people who come into the barbershop, listen to conversations and relate to people who we bring here for their success, for their ambition, aspiration. At the same time, people who are real. Like, so listening to your stories about either Bangalore, where you are an ASM or feeling that you are behind your colleagues for the first decade of your to talking about Durex, to talking about ambition for China and India, to you know, kind of being a, becoming an entrepreneur after play. I think a lot of that was interspersed with you being a very real person, taking an auto, talking to a taxi driver, taking a train, 
you know, being being conscious about having your own time. Um, that's why people love the show is because it's relatable aspiration. Um, any words of advice, motivation, anything to people who are on the fence about entrepreneurship? Now, because you've been on the fence for many years, talking to your EVPs and so on before you finally took the plunge. But any words of advice for them who might be watching? So lots of words of advice. The first is, the first, what I used to call the first rule of e-commerce. The first rule of e-commerce is e-commence. Okay. So until you start, it's zero. Correct. So the faster you start, the faster you start your compounding journey. I agree. So first start your compounding journey early as early as possible now. Don't aim for perfection at all. It's a bit like the game Fortnite if anyone plays it, yeah. right? So the s people spend all their time doing market research to understand the starting point. Where should I enter this world? <laughs> so when you start with Fortnite, you can think a lot of strategy. Oh, I should go behind that hill. But the reality is it doesn't really matter where you are because the moment you land there, you look at your goal and your goal is that side. You turn and you start running. Yeah. So start iterating early. Then pivot as soon as possible, but always with a goal in mind and be sure what that goal is. Be sure when you start that all of us love climbing ladders. It gives us the feeling of movement. The more important question is not whether you can climb the ladder. You are smart. You're smart. You'll climb every ladder that is thrown against you. The question that you have to answer is, am I climbing the right ladder? Which wall is this ladder leaning against? Correct. Don't build it for the next five years. Build it for the next hundred years. And the way to do that is not to worry about your exit. Not to worry about short-term success that at some point this hot potato I'll hand to somebody <laughs> who will then mark it up and sell it to some other VC, who will then play mark it up and sell it to another VC on some other books. You need to create something that is going to be of true and enduring value. And people get very worried. I think anybody who has a good work ethic and a good starting point and a good set of values will always make enough money to have a comfortable life. Yeah. So you should stop worrying about... I'll be on the road, I will not have a comfortable, you'll have a comfortable life, whatever you do. <laughs> that being given, what is it that I think, what mark do you want to leave on the world? Well, uh, Ali, this has been a scintillating conversation for me. Uh, I think just to to hear your insights, to hear your thoughts, I do kind of spend time before this also on your on your business and, and, and how you're building it has just been fascinating. I'm hoping that when you take money, from outside. I'm hoping the barbershop investors, <laughs> which you are a part of, by the way, <laughs> uh, will also get an opportunity to be a part of your journey. But uh, thank you so much for being here. It has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today. Thanks, Shantanu. I've really admired what you're building in the barbershop. And I think that uh, you guys are really going to make something special. But I, th I think, in a sense, you're a bit like Bill Gates. <laughs> I think that is a huge compliment. We'll go on. Okay, and I'll tell you why I think you're a bit like Bill Gates. So Bill Gates has had two lives. One life is in something called Microsoft. And he made a huge impact on the world, so he did well. The other life is what he actually did with his venture. And the impact that Bill Gates will be remembered for through his life is what he did for helping the world solve difficult problems. So my wish for you and the barbershop is not just that the Bombay Shaving Company does well, but that you are eventually remembered for sparking this wave of entrepreneurship in India, which this country really needs. I really hope we're able to live up to that and kind of keep working. The team is right here. So I think everyone should, uh, to, I think this is like, 
the they have thrown the gauntlet, right? The twenty percent responsible for twenty percent growth of record by twenty twenty for China. This is the gauntlet for us. Now I don't know how to measure it, but I'm sure we'll find ways to measure it for the barber shop. But I think the idea is to keep the process and the inputs yes constant. We'll keep working hard, and hopefully we'll be eventually one point zero one raised to three sixty five raised multiplied by ten years. Hopefully we get to some place meaningful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Adi. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have a gift for you. Oh my God! Yes, this is. Uh, oh wow! Uh, a token of appreciation and gratitude. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's so kind.